This is Greg Harmon of Deceleration, Deceleration.news, an online journal speaking to our shared ecological, political, and cultural crises, seeking out the roots of human and planetary insecurity, a movement beyond resistance in pursuit of a sustainable peace. So this is part of a series of podcasts we're doing dedicated to San Antonio's climate action and adaptation plan, uh, a city effort to rapidly reduce our climate pollution while preparing our residents for rapidly escalating extreme weather being brought about by fossil fuel-driven human industry and agriculture. What follows is a panel discussion um, that the... Alamo Group of the Sierra Club held uh, in late August, uh, in which I uh, speak with Mitch Hagney, of, uh, who is the founder of Local Sprout Food Hub, an urban farm and solar-powered gathering spot for small food businesses. Kate Giseldo is co-founder of Compost Queen, a family business tackling the food waste side of that equation. And Nadia Gauna, the founder of San Antonio Permaculture, a group of people from diverse backgrounds who come together to learn and share experiences of growing their own food and to discuss ways to create more regenerative communities. Thanks for joining us. My name is Greg Harmon. I work for the State Sierra Club. I'm here at Lions Field at a regular monthly meeting of the local Alamo group of the Sierra Club. We've got some amazing uh, folks with us today to talk about local food, uh, local food movements, uh, hopefully uh, what will become to be spoken of more frequently as a local foods revolution in San Antonio, right? Um, and we wanted to bring this panel together specifically uh, in light of the work the city's doing with its climate action and adaptation plan today. Um, there's been a lot of attention that's been given to, and rightly so, to energy, right? And dirty fuels, and how are we going to cut our carbon emissions and our greenhouse pollution in San Antonio, and how are we going to prepare our residents for what's uh, inevitably going to be a hotter, uh, rougher <coughs> climate, right, going forward. Um, but we don't hear as much about these quiet changes that are happening in our communities and have been going on preceding the cap, or what the climate action plan could uh, help move along, right? So how can city processes, including this work, you know, help propel the work you guys are doing already and, and, and create a, a, a deep and a rich circular kind of local foods economy, you know, that's a, a, an appropriate word for it. Um, and I do want to just kind of um, just open it up with introductions and invite y'all already uh, to start in over here with Kate just to introduce yourself um, to the group uh, and the, the organization, how you got started, just any kind of personal story you want to bring with that. And, um, and we'll just work down the line and we'll have, a, we'll have a short conversation. We'll spend the first part of the meeting just engaged in conversation here uh, and then open it up and, and have a more of a community conversation if that works. And so we'll do our announcements and all that at the end, towards the end of the meeting. Uh, I'm Kate Saldo. I'm co-founder of a local startup, uh, Compost Queen. So we do a residential and commercial food waste recycling service. So we um, pick up food waste from our clients and then we take it to local urban farms, community gardens, school gardens for them to process. We don't charge on that end because it's really, we want to help grow the local food movement here in San Antonio. And we know that the, that the farmers already have a lot of expenses and barriers to getting started. Um, I came to this uh, community relatively recently. We're a little, um, not quite a year and a half old as a company. My background is in social work and education, so I bring with it and, you know, looking at it with equity and, you know, long term, how can we add jobs to the community and employ maybe, you know, underemployed populations as well. Um, educate youth just about, you know, what's happening with the climate and what we can do on an individual level and a community level to change things. So I also work with, you know, restaurants and chefs. So I, I think it's really neat to be able to bring that 
you know, that part of the community together because there are a lot of chefs that also really care about that and local food. And so just really looking at the whole food cycle and how we can make it more sustainable here. What was the name of the business again? Compost Queens. Queens. Yeah. Could you tell them about Saturday? Um, and there's going to be, on Saturday, thank you, there's going to be a composting workshop at Terrell Heights Community Garden. So um, my partner, who's also my mom, is going to be talking about our, our method, Bokashi, and how we do it. And there's also going to be information on vermicomposting. So that's it. Um, I believe at 9.30, thank you, at, at Terrell Heights Community Garden. Which is on Larchmont Greenwich. We can even come back around to yeah. uh, upcoming <laughs> events uh, okay. deeper into the, the program. But Nadia, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, everybody. My name is Nadia Gaona. Um, I'm here as the founder of San Antonio Permaculture, which is an organization it's a, it's a grassroots organization. It's very informal of people just coming together to uh, learn more and teach each other about this concept of permaculture design, which is a set of principles and design techniques to form a more regenerative culture, more um, regenerative, sustainable communities. Um, the group started about four years ago. Um, I basically, I was doing a lot of master gardener work. I was uh, uh, joining the Master Naturalist and working at Gardenville at the time and I found out about this concept of permaculture. Uh, one of my co-workers uh, talked, started talking to me about Gardenville in San Marcos and all the wonderful things going on up there and in Austin. I found about, out about the Austin Permaculture Guild so I took the course and I basically was like, who do I have to talk to about these things here in San Antonio? I couldn't find anybody to talk to about it. So, um, so we started the Facebook group and, um, you know, Southwest Workers Union, uh, we took some classes together up in Austin on urban permaculture and social justice and, and they really helped uh, get the group uh, moving forward. We had, we, we had monthly meetings for a while there, um, some big events, perma blitzes, which are, you know, um, community events to build a permaculture uh, features such as food forests within the span of one weekend. And we partnered with Green Spaces Alliance, um, the Austin Permaculture <coughs> Guild, all of those um, good groups, the Earth Repair Corps up in Austin to make these things happen. Um, we've been kind of on a, a bit of a hiatus for a little bit, uh, but we still have the Facebook group is still going strong. We've got about 1,200 members in it. Um, it's fairly active. <coughs> We're just kind of trying to, to keep trucking along and, and figure out some ways to move forward with the group um, to where we can continue um, sharing these concepts and ideas and spreading them to um, many communities all over San Antonio. Awesome. Yeah. And Mitch? Uh, my name is Mitch Agnew. I have kind of two connections to food right now. One is that I run an urban farm uh, and a food hub company called Local Sprout. Uh, the type of farm it is a uh, hydroponic uh, indoor farm. We are based in a, ship, uh, a single 40-foot shipping container and we use uh, less than 1% of the water that outdoor soil farms would use for an equivalent volume of, uh, of production. It's about an acre's worth of production in a 40-foot container. Uh, no pesticides, no herbicides. Uh, I've been running that operation for five years now. Uh, Local Sprout has kind of grown beyond just the uh, production side alone to uh, build a, a space. It's kind of it's kind of a co-working space, but it, there's a bunch of resources inside a 16,000 square foot warehouse where we bring in other companies that are doing food manufacturing or production. There's coffee roaster, uh, fermentation specialist, uh, garlic roaster. There's a bunch of different folks making foods, and we try to prioritize companies that are going to do some local procurement and try to give them resources to, to expand their business. So a lot of the companies that sell at farmers markets around town do their manufacturing in, inside the food hub. And we give them resources like uh, commercial dishwashing and a bathroom and Wi-Fi and just different things that businesses need to operate that aren't directly related to the production of their goods themselves. Uh, so that's that's one thing that I do. And then the other thing is uh, I'm the current president, but I've been on the Food Policy Council for five years. And the Food Policy Council, for those who are, aren't unfamiliar, 
approaches the food system in a bunch of different contexts in, in San Antonio. Uh, for example, we work on trying to enhance urban agriculture and reduce barriers for production within the city. We try to reduce um, food, the presence of food deserts by trying to integrate healthy access uh, throughout the city. We work with um, schools to try to get their procurement more connected to local farms and try to get farmers to communicate directly with students in classroom contexts and kind of a bunch of other little contexts. Uh, but it's uh, an umbrella organization for several different work groups that are based on different issues within the food system. And uh, we work closely with council members, the mayor's office, and uh, not yet the county, but that's kind of a direction we're headed in to try to get actual laws changed or restrictions uh, removed uh, within the food system. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Did you mention that you're solar powered? Oh yeah, the food hub <laughs> yeah, runs on 36 kilowatts. So the operation itself within the warehouse has uh, some opportunities to reduce waste and, and integrate a couple innovative tactics uh, for like a large piece of infrastructure. So about a third of our total electricity consumption is produced on site with a 36 kilowatt um, capacity solar array on the roof. But we also use um, like a diversion from our air conditioning condensate for a large garden on the outside of the building. We try to gather cardboard to distribute to gardens to be a, a chemical-free weed suppressant. We are interested in doing some compost, but there, it, we actually we lack certain waste reutilization um, tactics on site because it's not economically viable for an operation that's relatively low margin. So we don't currently have a recycling dumpster, for example, because it costs much more to have a commercial recycling um, operation than if you just had two trash dumpsters. Now we have one trash dumpster now, but if I was to get, for example, a recycling dumpster and a trash dumpster, it would cost more than double what a single uh, trash dumpster is. So we do certain things quite effectively in terms of environmentalism, and then certain things we don't yet because we haven't really figured out how to use the market approach to make it viable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was really glad that, that you could be here specifically to talk about some of these these uh, barriers, right, uh, within current the structure of city ordinances or county when you run into that and, and, and business permitting and licensing. Uh, but that's going to be, I think, be an interesting part of the conversation to get around to that. I, I, I want to speak probably just very, very briefly set this up. Now, when we think about food and, uh, and, and, and lifeways in San Antonio in this place, we're obviously going to start, uh, you know, at the beginning, right, with the original peoples of this area and honor their work and traditional knowledge, uh, right, because we're talking about very high tech, we're also talking about very low tech. And so low tech in, in a sense that, you know, we could talk about grassroots, I guess, is maybe a better way to say that. Um, and so we're talking about histories that are primarily hunting and gathering, but also uh, agriculture as well, native plants, knowledge of herbs and healing plants. And I think that's where kind of permaculture is, is kind of a, uh, you used to, uh, I was hoping you could talk about regenerative culture, right? So permaculture is moving beyond just talking about garbage. Right, right? absolutely. And changing culture. Can you can you define that for us so we get before we move on? So we can define regenerative culture. Regenerative. What would be a regenerative culture? Well, um, I like to use this analogy that um, one of my teachers talks about. He says we so you know like the buzzword is like sustainability, right? We want to be like sustainable, but. If you have like a marriage and somebody says, oh, how's your marriage doing? It's like, it's sustainable. <laughs> you know, that's not necessarily a good thing, you know? So you want to move beyond sustainability. Sustainability is kind of just like in the middle between, you know, like it's, it could be bad and regenerative is kind of like on this, this other end where we're creating systems that are, are feeding themselves and, and building themselves and, and so that we don't have to put in so much output. It's basically just a closed-loop system. That's what my understanding is of regenerative. Yeah, uh, I'm going blank on his name. It's a dope word. Um, anyway, this is a real famous guy. I saw it not very long ago, Southwest Eco. Donna, uh, Bill McDonough? Darren, Who is it? Bill McDonough. Bill McDonough, yeah, I've heard him talk about that um, sustainable marriage um, uh, analogy before, and it's excellent. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. So, and I want to, it's a good spot to kind of turn with the, with the cap itself, you know, uh, 
uh, Sierra Club, both the state and local, were members of a coalition, Climate Action uh, uh, SA. And the goals of that group, the campaign that we've developed, well, originally it was to get a climate plan for the city, and now it is to kind of steer that plan in certain ways. Uh, and the goals are no coal by 2025, net zero energy by 2030, but 2050 is the more interesting maybe goal, and that is San Antonio as a carbon sink. And so that involves land, right? That involves how to work with the land. And so this idea, uh, going back again um, uh, to like indigenous knowledge, is just that the land and the people are one. The way you treat the land is really reflective of the way you treat one another and, and vice versa is about how I've come to kind of understand that. So when we look at generative culture, we're really looking back and forward, we're looking across the continuum, right? Um, but San Antonio, obviously, we're a history of you know the Spanish and the Ezequias, so the channelization, we're trying to recover from the channelization of a lot of our flood water, right, and restore the San Antonio River and, and, and some of our West Side Creeks right now, um, to the monoculture, the Germans came in, some my family, well, my family were in Nebraska, very German uh, farmers, uh, you know, coming in that direction. And I'm sorry, I got to manage this at the same time as I'm doing the, the other. But um, um, and then through onto kind of like industrial agriculture, right? So we reached this point of an industrial agriculture, which has turned out to be kind of like this um, an experiment that's turned on us in a, lot, in a lot of different ways. And part of looking forward to climate change is not just heat and storm and, and all this kind of stuff, but it's also, you know, we talk about extractive agriculture, I guess, and, and that is like the, you know, our fertilizer, and more like peat phosphorus or, or whatever. So we're really in uh, for, and we're gonna talk about, I hope, forecasts in a minute, but uh, there's a monumental challenge in terms of how we're gonna feed the city uh, in light of uh, skyrocketing prices on staple foods, right, food stuff. But I did put up on the on the wall, and it's a little bit. I mean, it's hard to see here. I'm gonna. Um, yeah. Anyway, the, the idea of that map, and this is going. So I wanted to start us uh, with the sustainability plan 2016. I think the light is on this side. Um, and that is simply that, um, let me see if I can get it on here too. Yeah. It didn't work. All right, well, I can't get it on here, but, um, yeah, so essentially, so 2016, food issues, food, local food security was ranked. So they ranked uh, the most, it's, uh, uh, yeah, food security. So the, the process of the, the sustainability plan was like, well, what's not sustainable about the way we're functioning as a city, right? And and, and what, and, and especially in light of climate change, they didn't, I don't even know if they used the language, no, I don't think they used right? The language, but they do have space Conceptually, yeah. conceptually. And so they identified, this is a very public process, identified like heat islands, right? As one of the uh, most vital issues uh, posing a threat to human security in San Antonio. And that's particular, when we talk about social justice, community justice, um, particular to kind of the west side, near downtown and the south side, where the most uh, clear-cutting has gone on and, 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 and some of this, and, and low-income areas, there's this great, perfect kind of overlay for some of that. But under medium-high, the plan identified local food security. And so this is a map of food deserts uh, in and around uh, San Antonio and um, Bear County, I believe. And a food desert is defined as anywhere that's where you, you live more than a mile away from a major, like a grocery store, that's, right? That's the way that the USDA determines. That's the USA, okay. Is there another definition that we may want to use? Or in rural areas, it's 10 miles. 10 miles in rural areas, yeah. Um, so the darker colors are the... Yeah, darker colors are the, the farther you are away from a major, I mean... Percent of, oh wait, <laughs> within one mile of the grocery, yeah, so, uh, yeah, these are the, the hot zones. The dark, the bad, the yeah. bad spots. Areas that are most food insecure. Yeah, and so, um, 
There's a couple interesting statistics out of that. Um, 32% of residents are food insecure based on this. Um, and meanwhile, at the time, 2016, there was only 24 farmers markets. So farmers markets doesn't seem like nimble. I mean, they're able to get in places, open up pop-up shops and that kind of thing. But we really haven't developed uh, a good network at that time uh, in the second hungriest state in the United States, right? Where so many kids are experiencing hunger. And I wonder if any of y'all can speak to the experience of trying to respond to this or where you've seen, whether it's city, the city working, or individual organizations, or community groups. Um. Yeah, the, so the Food Policy Council tries to, and, and it's, it's useful to distinguish sometimes the, the best solutions when it comes to reducing food insecurity are not necessarily the best solutions to increasing the amount of regenerative or sustainably produced food. And this is, I think, a distinction that gets lost on people who share both of those goals all the time. Um, when we think about food insecurity, um, the, there are two main components of the problem. One is the supply side problem, that the food is not in those locations, that there's not refrigeration capacity, there are not stores that are available, there, there may not be farmer's markets, there may not be gardens in those areas, but the food is not in those geographical locations. The second component, and this is what a lot of critics of programs to respond to these things point out a lot, is that there may be not enough demand to convince companies or people that would maintain gardens or people that would run farmers markets. There may be insufficient demand for those strategies to be sustainable because the people in those neighborhoods may not want that food enough. And there's a bunch of reasons for that potentially. Maybe they don't have any experience cooking it. Maybe it's too expensive. Um, maybe they don't have time to cook, maybe they don't have time to shop. Uh, there's a lot of different problems. It, it can be a, a little bit daunting in terms of what versions of those things do you want to work on. And it's a useful caveat that one mile away from a grocery store is a kind of weirdly static interpretation of where food insecurity is. Uh, there is a study that occurred in Baltimore from Johns Hopkins that produced what, at least the Food Policy Council, we kind of consider a, a better interpretation of what a, a food insecure area is. And that integrates the total amount of income in a given neighborhood, the distance to a grocery store, um, although we said a quarter mile as opposed to a full mile, uh, and more importantly, if there's access to transportation in those areas. So, as you can see, the far northern portion of the city would be considered a food desert because it's further than one mile away because that's where there's a decrease in density of food retail establishments. That's not really accurate considering that the majority of homes in those locations have a great deal of access to cars. So that's, that's something that's, that's kind of worthwhile and we at the Food Policy Council have proposed some data collection um, to determine some of those questions, as well as one other component which requires active collection of data, which is at locations where food is sold, how much healthy produce is available at, at, at those spots. And uh, at least Johns Hopkins came up with a score to say, okay, if, if there's a tomato, then that's one point. If there's lettuce, that's another point. And it's an objective scale to compare the quality of establishments by measuring how much healthy food is available at those spots. They call it a healthy food availability index. We'd like to collect that data. But the question about how do you deal with food insecurity in an area that you know it exists, um, there's a lot of competing theories. Some people want more farmers markets uh, and some people want more gardens. Personally, I don't think that those are particularly effective strategies uh, because it requires a lot of labor and a lot of flexibility in your schedule. The garden. Uh, the garden or the farmers. But so the garden requires a great deal of labor and it requires a certain amount of land that you have access to managing. It also requires people not to thieve those items or different different cultural aspects. The farmer's market potentially could intervene in an area that um, that doesn't have a, a huge amount of produce in those areas, but there's relatively low demand, so farmers themselves, like myself, aren't likely to make enough money to, to justify the expense of going to that location. But also, it, farmer's markets generally occur once a week, and if you're working two jobs, it's kind of difficult to schedule your whole week around the ability to get some produce, and, and certainly that's a high burden. So what we have been pushing at the Food Policy Council is trying to get food in retail establishments that are already available to these locations. And we look at convenience stores as a better access point to be able to get food into those spots. There 
uh, open for a long period of time. There's already traffic uh, for people who are coming into those locations. The main problem is that there's not enough refrigeration capacity, uh, that there's risk with purchasing produce as opposed to non-perishable items for the, uh, for the owner of the convenience store because Doritos go bad a lot um, less quickly than grapes. And in order to get the produce to those locations, you have to sell enough volume to justify a delivery expense. Um, from, on the behalf of, uh, of some of the wholesalers. So what we've done is create an incentive program where the city can put up some money to help these convenience stores get some extra fridges, get some extra money to, to slightly subsidize the purchase of these things. But then we've gone to private industry like a huge amount of produce wholesalers to reduce or eliminate their minimum order requirements and make it easier to distribute to get to those locations. And, and we. We're trying to work on both the supply and the demand side problem at the same time with educational programming that are at those spots, marketing programs that happen at those spots to try to get more demand at the same time we're putting more produce in those areas. So, nodding, you were nodding early on there about the issue of what is the correct approach or how, how do you uh, really solve this issue of bringing healthy food into communities that have gone without it. I'm wondering you can speak to your experience of working in some of these neighborhoods or working with, and what people say, tell you that they need. Right. Well, um, I, I agree completely like with what Mitch is saying. And uh, basically, I feel like it needs to be like a multi-pronged approach. I mean, we can put the food in the grocery stores, but if there isn't, like you said, if there isn't a demand in the neighborhoods, well, then it's, it's not going to work out and they're not going to want to continue those programs. So um, I just kind of like want to speak a little bit to like the work that I'm doing like for my day job, like which is a community health worker um, with Metro Health, and basically um, we're working in some of the same neighborhoods that the Food Policy Council is uh, working in or going to be working in, and um, so we're helping residents organize themselves um, to be able to make these kinds of demands and to just be able to empower themselves to to want to make these changes and to be able to support each other in making these changes because without the support system um, it, it's really difficult to make these changes if you haven't been doing this if you if it's, we have like this intergenerational poverty and, and people haven't been cooking at home for for generations basically and the thing i see a lot in the neighborhoods that i work in is the, the knowledge is there the ancestral knowledge is there people talk about you know going and harvesting you know prickly pear and the, the wild grapes but it's just not convenient anymore. And it's it's just, you know, people have way too many other things going on in their lives. So um, one of the things that, you know, we work on in, in that in that job with the health department, we do asset-based community development. So we kind of try and connect people who have different gifts with each other so that they can, you know, just help each other to where maybe they have like a little bit more time or a little bit more support or it's a social thing to eat better or to cook food together or to exercise. And um, that's kind of what I'd like to do with the permaculture group more too, is just to grow um, leaders within these communities to where, um, yeah, people are just supporting each other with, with childcare, with cooking with maybe not everybody needs to have a garden, right? Because that's the thing, it's like, we're like, it's, it's becoming like this trendy thing to have a garden or, you know, the farmer's markets and stuff, but it just doesn't work for everybody. So maybe, you know, just find that gardener within the neighborhood and, you know, share responsibility for that yard, basically. Um, and somebody else can, you know, do the cooking and we can do like community like potlucks and, and block parties and things like that with the food that we're producing within that that neighborhood. Yeah, I, I like what you're saying, or what you said about lost knowledge. So, so maybe the value, uh, you know, on the one hand, we're looking at a big picture. We want to create, or, or I think we want to create a, a robust, thriving bubble food economy and something that feeds our families in the face of increasing stress, right? Uh, but what your comment about lost traditional or ancestral knowledge, I think is really interesting because there's a psychological health and well-being that comes from maybe you're not farming your quarter acre lot, but if you're if you have time to sit down with your grandmother, right, or work in a, with neighbors and, and, and abuelitas and, 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 and 
and recover just a little bit of that, right? I mean, again, I think there's a lot of benefit that comes from that. And I don't know if you could speak or, or Kate. I mean, I know when you're bringing your program around and people are connecting again to kind of stuff that is not always comfortable, right? Food scraps or food waste or things like that. But there's a relationship that develops, oh, yeah. right? Yeah, well, and with composting, I think, you know, we go out, we do a lot of workshops, and there's a lot of people that are trying to compost at home, but there's also a lot that they had experience growing up because their grandmother had a garden and composted everything, and they, you know, spent time in the country, and so I think there is sort of just this general wanting to get back to, you know, where we have been before and local food and learning how to grow it when we can. Um, I think just being able to recognize what's available in the community, the, the knowledge that's available, also the organizations that are doing a lot of the work. There are a lot of um, you know, community gardens and school gardens that are already starting in areas that need them. So I, what we see our role as certainly is trying to support that grow that so that that can continue to spread and support the other, you know, initiatives that are happening. How, how do people, I mean, I know you must have a lot of different experiences working with different clients or folks who are like, I want this, but I don't want to touch it. Or like, I'm like, this, this shit is amazing, you know, like. <laughs> yes, you know? so so we, we use this method, Bokashi, so it, it's, um, a lot of people maybe in San Antonio have experience with the green bin that gets really stinky and a lot of bugs, or they have something in their backyard that's just sort of dormant. And so we're you're fermenting your food waste with our method in a bucket. So you're really seeing what you're putting in there, and it's um, it you know it grows over time. So we've had a lot of clients that are scared to try it because it's, it's going to stink. It's, you know all those things. I did the method for you know several months before we started the business, and it was kind of like a science experiment every time I added food in, but it was always pleasantly surprising. Um, so I think just, A, people are seeing how much food they're wasting and just becoming cognizant of it and wasting less, but we go and do workshops like at schools and kids that maybe don't spend any time, you know, gardening or with food, you know, you show them a bucket of food waste that doesn't actually, it's not horrible and they're like, in, totally intrigued by it, and that just sticks with them, and it kind of demystifies the process for them. And then they go, they go home and take that with them. So, do you take permaculture into the schools? Um, we don't necessarily. We partner with other, you know, verma, verma composters, and we'll do like, you know, groups. Seems like that yeah. would be popular. Yes, worms are very popular. <laughs> 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 making a comeback. Yeah. Um, so in regards to the, the climate action plan, so we talked a little bit about where the sustainability plan left us and some of the challenges, it sounds like, in, in achieving, like the recommendations, I guess we did talk about, that they, they mapped out uh, a series of potential responses, right? And then there was each, each area where there's waste or, or food got a star, there's a gold star on those that was like the community favors or this. And so for, for the food system, yeah. the, what the sustainability plan ended up producing were nine recommendations for, for what should happen in the context of the food system. They ranked them in terms of how they affected air quality, water quality, um, equity, and a couple of things. And then there was uh, how many people just support an initiative, which is the gold star that Greg mentioned. And at least in the context of uh, the food system goals, the one that got the gold star is uh, incentives to increase urban agriculture. And, and the sustainability plan took about a year and a half in terms of how long the drafting process was before it was passed by the city council. A lot of you are probably familiar. It is useful to note that of the nine sustainability goals related to the food system, uh, not one has been implemented. Not one, yeah, I, I dropped off. Not, not one. That's good. All right, that's what I thought you said. <laughs> Um, which, which can make it a little bit frustrating when you approach yeah. when you approach the climate action plan to encounter more comprehensive planning process. Uh, it's difficult not to wonder if these measures will end up being. Mm -hmm. I, I think um, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Say the word carbon. 
Yeah. Yeah. No. Pretty much. Right. But I mean, again, I mean, we are within the climate action plan. Told we're we're taking we're stepping off from the work of the sustainability plan. But if we never stepped into anything, then there's a real issue. And I don't hear. And I will say, I don't hear the work of that committee being emphasized much. I'd like. I mentioned the the preferred uh, recommendations because it felt to me at least that that this was a publicly decided, this is what we're excited about. It tells you where the people are, there's a passion. And, uh, and that specifically was about how do we incentivize farming empty lots. So it was about returning into the city, not like brownfield or, or whatever you call it, but returning into the city and, and, and bringing up something new in, in our neighborhoods. Um, and so it's, it's, a real, it's a real shame that that didn't well, yeah, it should. Yeah. Be, it should be noted. Okay. Okay. It's yeah. Not, it's not city council people. I haven't met a single one that is opposed to any of the goals that were that were mentioned. They have just not yet been implemented or funded. And there was also an interest in opening new markets for composting. And I don't know over this period of time if there's been more progress on um, landfills and waste and composting than gardens. Um. I mean, not that we are aware of. I mean, we're pretty much, from what we can tell, out here on our own, figuring out, you know, our path on how to do this. In, in the private, I mean, the, the, right. the residential organics collection is new. And, right. And new, we have the largest composting operation in the state of Texas in San Antonio. Okay. At, at our, our facility. But you're working on urban gardens, trying to get a... Oh, we're working on a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're trying to get a... A project to show on the urban block, and then also about the fees that are. Yeah, let's slow down on the. We don't just finish up a, a brief conversation, and then we'll just go. And that's all right. I just, just, I just wanted to get into the cap, right? Stepping off, just, just making it clear the, the limits of progress from this last comprehensive planning process with the climate action plan. So now we're able to say climate change. 10 years ago, when we started with Mission Verde and, and Hardberger and some of this stuff, global warming, you could, climate change, you couldn't, you could say sustainability. Eventually we got this plan, that was our kind of a breakthrough. Um, and so now we are, you know, Lisa, you're, you're right, say carbon, say the word carbon. Yeah. But, but, to be, but to be clear, this is a really a two, also a two-part plan, you know, um, where uh, mitigation is one side and that is carbon, right? Um, adaptation is kind of a whole other ball, ball game to me because it doesn't necessarily, it's not about, it doesn't have to be about drawdown. So that's a benefit. You know, when we talk about agriculture, that's a huge benefit. Um, and so within that framework, um, San Antonio, I should say, we did uh, opening up this conversation, has committed itself, the council has committed itself to meet the objectives of the international non-binding Paris Agreement, uh, which is uh, intense. You know, all, the, all, all the countries on the planet, except for the United States right now, are partners and working toward the goal of keeping global temperature rise under two degrees, uh, preferably 1.5, I mean, uh, over pre-industrial levels, right? Um, which is um, pretty near impossible, but we gotta have target, right? Gotta have a place to work. Um, and, and even two degrees is kind of a disaster in Southeast Asia and Africa and many parts of the, of the planet. So it's, it's not, um, it's not really workable in terms of what we are imagining and looking for. But uh, how would you describe, and I know um, a couple of you guys are on the cap, uh, that experience, if you were involved in sustainability plan, you know, comparing it or contrasting it, but just the process generally, how would you describe that? Uh, well, I'm. This is. The, I'm on the waste and consumption um, technical working group, and this is really the first time I've been on any sort of city, you know, group like this. And it's it's been a little confusing, to be perfectly honest. Just what the process is, what it, what exactly my role is. Um, it seems like a lot of, you know, the first few meetings seemed like a lot of repeating the same information and I would try to, you know, send some emails for clarification and 
there's just not a lot of communication transparency. So it's been it's been eye opening, I guess, and you know definitely want to continue and see what, especially with um, adaptation measures, we can you know get in there. But it's it's been eye opening. We're kind of in that mitigation <laughs> channel right now. Right. Heavy yeah. Mitigation. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I was really um, no, 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 no. Well, I don't want to limit it to mitigation. That's where we are right now in the process. That's the minimum. That's where we are in the process right. of defining action. That's where the discussion plan. has right. been centered. Right. And, and then we'll, and then comes. Uh, so that's one of the reasons I was really happy that you were joining us. Is actually kind of like your newbie status in <laughs> San Antonio or in this, in this scene because I think that sometimes it takes. Uh, fresh eyes that are anchored to past relationships and success or failures or whatever. So, uh, don't. And and it's been. I mean, there have been some you know great ideas that I've heard kind of come out of it in passing. That um, I'm not you know I'm not sure where they'll go, but it, it's it's nice to kind of hear what could happen and get some ideas on policy language and things like that. So. Uh, Mitch, have maybe has more. <laughs> We're on the same technical action uh, committee. Uh, you're, she's referencing that sometimes folks who have the best ideas in terms of policy are trapped within non-political environments. So, like, we heard a really great recommendation happen uh, offhandedly at one of the meetings from someone within the waste department who presumably can't advocate for policy because it's it's outside of their potential purview. When he did mention it, we said, "Wait, that's a really." Good. Yeah, we're gonna say, we're gonna try to, to make that happen. So, what was that idea? That, that that idea is that new development in San Antonio should be required. Some amount of new material that they use should have to be locally produced compost. So when you do a lot of construction, you bring in a great deal of fill um, to stabilize an, an area or level it. Um, if you use fill from uh, outside, uh, then you're spending a great deal of resources to bring it in, which, which is carbon emissions, and then it usually is relatively impermeable, and which decreases water percolation. Uh, but there's a real opportunity if you use compost to not only um, increase water retention in that property, which can help reduce flooding and increase percolation of the aquifer, but it has the added benefit of creating secondary markets for the production of compost. One problem that other cities have been experiencing are that they'll produce a huge volume of compost because they have a lot of organic matter, but the market to sell compost back is not large enough to justify the amount of consumption. And so it just doesn't quite work out without subsidies. If development, which has a pretty good profit margin, has some ability to put money back into local composting, then that market may be a lot more efficient. So, so that's an idea we wouldn't have come up with. Right. I know. Uh, and, and right. I mean, it was having somebody that has, you know, looked at other cities and the problems they've experienced. Um, I, I would, and that, to me, that's a good example of the. And the waste group is, is sort of on the fringe. I would say the equity group is probably on the fringe of what, what CAP is supposed to be producing. The transportation and the, the, the electricity slash building side, I think, are kind of the core of where the mission of the CAP is supposed to push towards to reduce emissions. Uh, but it seems like it has done a great, if nothing else, it's done a very good job of bringing a collective of competent individuals together to try to formulate uh, programs or ideas about how to work these problems. But there weren't, there wasn't a lot of resources that have been allocated to the actual data collection side. Which uh, CPS knows a great deal about how much uh, their their actual electricity plants are producing in terms of emissions. But we don't really know that much. It seems like in terms of where the rest of the emissions are coming from, or quantifying those. And the 500 grand that was allocated from CPS to UTSA doesn't isn't really sufficient to do a huge amount of data collection. Uh, and there's a question about whether or not there will be any teeth because it's also, just like Paris was non-binding for countries, CAP is non-binding for the city in terms of how much it's going to mandate that they would actually work on. And then third, it seems like there's some kind of broad disorganization, in, in my opinion, on what deliverables they are seeking. So Kate's really like a, a very competent researcher and expert in her field. They don't know how to use her effectively to figure out how to make the compost market more effectively. And as a result, the potential that she had to, to make really good recommendations has sort of been squandered. And, and 
and that's probably true in lots of the individual, the river area, the aquifer area, the, the agriculture area, different segments of, of the expertise that were available have not been actual, uh, actualized into deliverables. I, I like your, your uh, perception or of, of what's being valued and what's being not, not as valued, uh, particularly because the equity committee is intended to be the lead car on all of the work that happens within the CAP, right? And um, uh, it is intended to inform every other technical working group uh, on, you know, because we, as we remake or revise or, or, or recreate or retool our economy to get the carbon out and uh, prepare uh, residents for a more violent, extreme future, uh, equity. The idea um, is supposed to then say, well, here's where your resources should be going to protect, ideally, those who have contributed least to climate change but are most at risk, right? But we're stuck in a process that really, yeah, there's there's very technocratic, there's very particular and I'll say paternalistic kind of values that come into play, and that's the expert, you know, and um, the credentials and that kind of stuff, which really works against our ability to to advance, you know, climate equity ideas and concepts. So that's a really I appreciate you saying that, and other, you're not the only one that's that that's, that sees that value lost. And I would say, related to the inventory, the greenhouse gas inventory, uh, as well, I could say a lot of other greenhouse. Many people in this room could about the inventory, but it took a lot of pushback from members of these different working groups uh, to get even local industry included, and that's simply. You know, we said, well, what about the cement plants? Oh, well, it's hard to get the data and all this. Well, have you been to the EPA's greenhouse gas inventory? Because they have had to report to the EPA for all these years, just take that number. And in the current version, the final version, they took that number. But then when it comes to other local business or, or even agriculture in Bear County or some of this stuff, and there's a lot of lives. I mean, you know, there's a lot of agriculture there. And it's going to be in play as we... Um, move into this world. And I will say that, and, and then just open it up to whoever up here would like to respond to this and then maybe go into open conversation. Uh, you know, today we heard um, Doug Melnick, um, the, the head chief sustainability officer with the city, uh, present to the Health and Equity Committee. Three council members were, were present. And they asked him, what numbers are you showing us when you talk about how hot it's going to get and all this kind of stuff? He says, well, I'm showing you the worst case scenario, right? Um, because that's the most likely one right now. And that worst case scenario means by middle, mid-century, our summers from start to finish are over 100, you know, the, the highs are over 100 degrees. And, 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 and the paper I read a few months ago was over 100, 203, which is where they call it life-threatening heat. So our summer long, you know, is life-threatening heat. If people cannot cool their core body temperature down in that period, that's it. So it's a really startling uh, shift. And from globally, we could talk about globally and where, uh, you know, where you guys, somebody here, surely tell me, there's like five crops at like 75% of all the food that we eat, right? I mean, it's, was it corn and wheat? The core, the core three are corn, wheat, Rice. And rice, and then it, it drops to like soybeans and soil. But yes. okay, I, I mean, every I had another chart, but it's running all this. I'm like, it's too complicated <laughs> to put it up here. But it was uh, basically showing those crops under certain degrees of, of heat rise, and, and and it's basically just like a wilting, right? Like the productivity, um, and so. I just think food prices initially, right, and and the impact for, for local folks. And, and what role do you think then local agriculture could play in a realistic way um, within the last next 20 years? And, and what, poli what are the key policies or changes we would have to implement? Particularly greenhouses. So, so I, I local agriculture is an interesting way to try to respond, respond to this. And I, I think that there are technological solutions that can, we've seen a plateau of overall yield increases as a result of the Green Revolution really was amazing. It saved a huge, huge volume of lives. The person who came up with 
with dwarf wheat, which is a, a variety that uh, where more biomass was put into the actual food rather than the stock. Uh, the person who worked on those genetics is credited with saving a billion lives. And it, the Green Revolution deserves a great deal of accommodation. We didn't know that fertilizer uh, was causing nitrous oxide emissions or um, draining off to rivers and bays and causing algal blooms and um, depleting the soil and doing a bunch of stuff. So, it, it 20, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. That plateau is frustrating, especially considering population continues to grow and those who are still those people who are around seem to be having uh, an increase in their overall quality of life or standard of living, which generally sees a shift from baseline crops like consumption of wheat and corn to um, things that utilize those like meat. So people say in the same time frame that we're seeing a, an increase in overall um, heat that we need to double our agricultural yields by 2050, which seems very difficult. We saw it, the Green Revolution happen as a result of new chemistry that we didn't, we didn't have access to before. We had the ability to derive nitrogen from natural gas and deliver that nitrogen directly to plant roots. I suspect that there will continue to be, this is one of my more optimistic viewpoints, I think, that there will continue to be increases in yields as a result of information technology. As we use drones more effectively, as we can do monitoring more efficiently. I saw you playing with robots in your videos. Yeah. I think there's a whole host of other problems, which is like what happens to the labor market when we automate these things. But if you eliminate human labor, potentially you can decrease the, the, the cost of the product as well. So we are likely to see, in my opinion, an increase in yield if investments continue to, to pour out to increasing total production. I also think that in having spent five years actually doing hydroponic farming and selling crops, at a scale like mine, um, it, it's unlikely to make a real big dent in the total amount of production or, or capacity uh, because an acre is worth nothing to a full city, really. But hydroponics and indoor agriculture has the ability to A, be insulated from um, temperature rises and floods and um, storms, etc. But it also has the ability to potentially scale quite prodigiously because you can stack them within buildings or bury them under the ground or um, different contexts like that. Now, that said, that's, those new technologies are primarily useful for specific crops. Uh, you're not going to see hydroponics compete with corn, wheat, or rice in terms of the, their cost efficiency in the marketplace. But I do think that you can see some competition emerge within leafy greens, which is what I grow, tomatoes, bell peppers, a huge amount of other vegetables and fruits, and therefore kind of deliver decent nutrition that's grown fairly locally without a great deal of pesticides or herbicides. And outside of the city, I think that you have the drones and the automation and um, even automated cars and, and other vehicles for, to, to increase the efficiency of transportation networks. Um, they may increase total yields that we're seeing from, from elsewhere as well. Um, but there's no way to have, in my opinion, the majority of calories consumed in a city produced close to that city. I think that we will continue to rely on rural environments to, to produce those things, and it's questionable whether or not there will be enough production to compensate for the increase in demand. We're, we're just at an hour. We started a few minutes late, but I want to kick it down over to Nadia and, and Kate and just ask you kind of what your particular vision is, uh, what do you see ahead of us, and how can uh, urban agriculture, how can social uh, movements or just changing consciousness uh, uh, respond to that. Interesting. Um, I think just by, you know, continuing to, to educate people and, you know, to educate ourselves, that's, that's the best thing we can do. I mean, overall, I think I, I, I heard something, I read something the other day that it's, it's kind of not fair to put all of these these changes that are happening like on this global level like you know on just regular people and, and changing their habits because it's a lot of it comes from the corporations that are you know um, contributing to all of this pollution that's you know making all of these climate changes happening but um, I think by continuing just to strengthen 
these relationships within our communities. That's you know historically been one way that people have survived these these really dramatic changes and, and, and catastrophic changes within the environment and, and within war and, and all of these other things that have happened. It's been the strength of, of the bonds that people have with each other. So I think that's kind of the direction that my work's gone into. It, it's kind of grown from just you know talking to people about growing gardens and, and doing making gardens in a sustainable way to how we interact with people and applying the principles of permaculture to to the relationships that we're building in the communities um, that we that we surround ourselves with. So um, yeah, just just creating uh, stronger cells of people that you know are able to just talk to each other and help each other out when, when times are tough. That's that's kind of been like my focus for for a long time, and and it's you know, arguably more difficult. I mean, farming is hard, gardening is hard, but it's arguably more difficult to to work together with people when everybody has their own opinions of how to do things. And uh, yeah, it, it takes a lot of, uh, you know, strong, dedicated people to become leaders and to be patient with each other and to, to kind of grow that that compassion with each other to, to be able to work through those difficulties and those conflicts so that we can, you know, continue surviving on this planet. Yeah, that's really uh, beautiful. I, I've heard it said, or I've seen, seen some teachers talk about transformational or social resilience as needing to be the third leg on the stool of adaptation and mitigation and, and, and social resilience, right? So the strong communities and strong relationships uh, in order to respond to strong situations. I don't know if you have thoughts on your vision of the future and, and, and your role in it through the work that you do. Um, well, really, I mean, I agree a lot with what Nadia said. I think what I've, as a, as a relative newcomer, I've just, there are so many individuals and organizations, for-profit, not-for-profit, that are working towards this end goal and being on the Food Policy Council and just seeing, you know, what San Antonio already has going on. I would just love to see more collaboration. Um, I think really, you know, I have visions of developing co cooperatives where small businesses can work together and feed off of each other and support each other and, you know, help deal with some of the overhead costs that keep things. I mean, a lot like what Mitch is doing with the Food Hub, you know, I think that's really the only way that we're gonna survive going forward with all these changes is really collectively working together um, and then I think also just like right now looking at like right before we got started there was a kind of a conversation about the article of who's using the most water in the city residentially and those are not the people that are most vulnerable to the effects of climate change. Those people are probably not using much water so we have to really look at um, how we address this in our city, how we hold all of our residents responsible um, for our future. So. Awesome. Well, I'm going to turn the lights on. Uh, just so everybody knows, this camera is here functioning. We are live streaming the, the talk. So um, if you want to engage, you know how to do that? Okay. Um, yeah, no, it's three on the wall right there. Thank you. Um, I had an online question. Mitch, when are you going to add another container? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I have uh, a second shipping container right now. Um, their local spread is focused a lot on developing the food hub, so when there's been extra capital around, we've invested in things like commercial dishwashers and a smoking pit and uh, like electrical um, uh, renovations, etc. Uh, generally, I think, so my, my single shipping container right now, if that was Local Sprout's only source of revenue, I don't think that Local Sprout would, would still be around. I think we, we would have ended up buckling under what the total cost to operate the business would, would end up being. And that's, that's with selling at farmer's market prices and getting a premium at, at restaurants, etc. When people are interested in starting urban farms, and I very much encourage them to do so, when I was talking about really large-scale operations, to, to increase yield for the city. I think that that's important for total food security, but we help the city a great deal, um, even farming a little bit or producing a little bit, both in terms of 
connecting people kind of conceptually to their food, teaching people about how the process of food is grown, and also you can, I, I certainly produce more kale than I can consume, uh, <laughs> more than I would ever want to, certainly. Uh, and, but I, I can provide a, a great deal of leafy greens. So some urban agriculture is, is great, but you really have to do your homework to figure out what is the scale that is necessary. Uh, earlier this month, a an urban farm that operated for six years, Happy uh, Earth Garden, uh, ended up going out of business, or at least choosing to no longer operate because they did not generate sufficient revenue. So uh, I continue to produce more crops at the food hub outdoors with drip line irrigation, and I have a second shipping container, but an active decision that I'm still making is, can I generate more revenue by using that second shipping container that's already insulated with an air conditioning unit as, as a farm or as something else. So I have a bunch of chefs in there. Some other potential examples are, could I use it as a charcuterie aging room, which could be useful to, to create value-added products from, for local ranchers to make their really high-quality meat into something that has an extra high margin. Um, so I'm not sure when I'm next going to build more farming capacity in the interior of the building, but for me, it has to be somewhat of a business decision because um, sustainability or regeneration requires at least some ongoing growth. Deceleration is a joint effort of uh, myself and my wonderful partner, Marisol Cortez. And uh, we blog, write uh, every once in a while at deceleration.news and every once in a while throughout one of these podcasts. But we'll be trying to do uh, a little bit more as San Antonio uh, pushes through with his climate plan. Uh, a great opportunity for community dialogue. See you next time.